Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 29, and it was recorded on Thursday, June 13, 2019. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our eighth episode of 2019. We were joined by Tanya Little, Chief Development and Partnerships Officer with Food Banks Canada, Bernard Ross, a director at Equals MC, and Andrea McManus, a partner at Vitreo. Our topic, Sacred Cows. What do we take for granted in fundraising, and should we? Sacred cows are those things and ideas that have been accepted for a long time, and people are often unwilling to question. Ideas that are considered to be sacred are, however, often outdated or just plain wrong. Join us in conversation with these great fundraisers as they share their thoughts and ideas about what they believe to be our most notable sacred cows. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 29 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is our eighth episode of 2019. Our topic today, sacred cows. What do we take for granted in fundraising and should we? We have three great guests with us today, all amazing fundraisers and leaders in the sector. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from right here in Calgary is my business partner, Andrea McManus. I often save the introductions of my business partners and associates for last. Today, I want to mix that up. This is Andrea's fifth visit to the show. I'm pretty sure that is a record. Andrea first joined us back in season one on episode three, The Future of Fundraising and Philanthropy. She also joined us later that season on episode nine, If You've Seen One Board, You've Only Seen One Board. Then Andrea took a break and did not join us again until the end of season two on our episode about gratitude. And, and Andrea holds the singular distinction, at least so far, of being our first and only guest host. Andrea hosted our 24th episode back in January of this year. The topic was women in philanthropy. It was a great episode. Andrea, thank you for that, and it's always great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Uh, thank you. It's always great to be here. Andrea, you recently started a blog that has more than a few posts about sacred cows. We're going to hear about that and much more later in the show. But for now, I know you've had quite a wonderful year. Earlier this year, your daughter got married in Australia. And in addition to attending the wedding, you were also able to spend some extra time down under. During that time, you spoke at an Australian fundraising conference. Can you share with us a few of the things you learned or observed about fundraising in that part of the world? Oh, gosh. Um yeah, well, that's the second time that I've actually attended the Fundraising Institute of Australia conference. I, I was there in 2012 as well. I wasn't speaking then, but uh, it's always it's fascinating to me to um, see how fundraising is done in, in other parts of the world. Um, I think in many ways, we in North America uh, are, we have evolved in some ways that for example, in terms of major gift fundraising, that there are other parts of the world that are, are not as evolved as we are. On the other hand, there are parts of the world, particularly in Europe and I would say Southeast Asia, that um, do, I think, have been on looking at fundraising in terms of being multi-channel and marketing-driven, um, and they're highly evolved in there. And we, so I think we all have a lot to learn from something, from each other. Um, Australia is, uh, I love Australia. It's a wonderful country. And if I could just, just as a little sidebar, I just want to make this statement that my daughter actually got married on a mini pony farm in Ballarat. Which was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I would say there, you know, uh, there's lots of opportunity for us to share practices with Australian fundraisers, both, you know, both ways across the pond, so to speak. That's great. Thanks, Andrew. I had to resist uh, uh, a chiming in with a smart remark when you said I wasn't speaking then. Um, and I thought, oh. wow, did, did you just, did you, did she just learn how to speak? No, I, I know, I know that's not true. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew, for sharing that. Thank you. Um, next, joining us from the United Kingdom, we have Bernard Ross, 
uh, uh, Bernard is a well-known fundraiser who regularly speaks at conferences across the world. This is not his first appearance on the podcast, on a podcast, but it is his first appearance on our podcast. Welcome, Bernard. Thank you so much, Vince, for having me. Pleasure to be here. Bernard, I have been an admirer for a long time. Your conference presentations are legendary, and I have been blessed to attend more than a few of them. A couple of years ago, you joined us in BAMP for the AFP BAMP Compass Conference. At the end of the conference, four of us were able to have dinner at the Three Ravens restaurant at the BAMP Center. Along with the two of us, Andrew was also there, as was Martha Shoemaker. It was a magical evening in a majestic setting. We can talk more about that dinner later, but right now I have a question for you. You are a director at your consultancy, the Management Center, and the tagline of that practice includes the phrase, working worldwide for ethical organizations. I love this phrase. Can you tell us a bit about why you chose to explicitly use the term ethical organizations? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think because... Uh, and I wonder if this is going to become one of our secret codes for later. I, I don't like the word charity. I think the word charity carries, and I, I think Tanya might agree with this. I think the word charity implies the doing of good. And certainly in the UK, the reality is that many, many agencies that can acquire the status of charity, I don't think are doing social good. They are, like Eton private school bastions of privilege or, um, you know, I, so for me, the key thing is this is organization ethical. And, you know, there are companies out there who are working towards social good. There are uh, public agencies, local authorities, governments that are working towards public good. And we, we prefer to align ourselves with, with those and not to kind of say there's some special little group of people who essentially have a tax status, which is what charity very often is in, in many countries. Um, that, that makes them, by definition, good. So we, I think, our reason for that is to say that we, anyone anywhere in the world who wants to do good, if we think you're behaving ethically, we would like to help you do it, no matter what your technical legal status is. It, it, it's not more complicated than that, and it gives us quite a lot of freedom, I think, to operate. Right, but it also, I would say, I, I think it probably centers the type of clients that you uh, are either attracted to you or you're attracted to, which is awesome. Um, I love I love that. Thanks for sharing that. And I hope we do talk a little mm. bit more about that word charity. So thank you. Finally, last but not least, joining us from Toronto, we have my friend and colleague, Tanya Little. Like Andrea, hi Tanya. Hi, hi. Like Andrea, <laughs> Tanya has been on our podcast uh, before, although it, it has been a while. Tanya first joined us back in June 2017. Yes, we've been doing it since 2017 on episode four. Um, the topic was about how to retain great staff. So, Tanya, first, uh, welcome back. And second, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday dear, dear Tanya. Tanya. Happy birthday, happy birthday to you. <laughs> that was great, guys. You did that un- unprompted. That's so great. So, welcome, Tanya. Uh, best welcome ever. <laughs> Thank so you this, for having me. Yeah, so this this recording date for the folks who will be listening in the future, which will be August, uh, is in June, and it's uh, Tanya's birthday. It's June the 13th. Uh, Tanya, this episode will be aired two months from now, sometime in August, as I just said, well past the end, and I'm about to break a rule, of the NBA basketball final. So this part of the podcast is either going to be really sweet to listen to then, or yeah. really sad. Um, I am, of course, talking. I am, of course, talking about the Toronto Raptors basketball team tonight, June thirteenth, two thousand nineteen. They will be playing in Game Six against the Golden State Warriors. Um, this seven-game series is currently three to two for the Raptors. If they win this series, they make history. If they don't win this series, they still make history. Canadians not especially known for following basketball, are, as a nation, on the edge of their seats. What we want to know is, what's it like? What's it been like living in the heart of it all? How have you been participating in Raptor Nation, Raptor Fever? I love that question. So our office workplace have, on game days have, uh, everyone's brought out their Raptors gear, and we have a weed and orange flag in the office. 
Um, but actually, interestingly, uh, Monday night, uh, which was our, which was game five, uh, in Toronto, which had a devastating finish at 106-105 for the Warriors, um, I was downtown, um, trying to get out of the downtown. <laughs> um, and I made it home, uh, just in the, in the nick of time to kind of watch the last 30 minutes of the game. And I will say the energy is palpable. The city is, um, on the edge of their seats. Um, there are these um, incredible sites right across the country that are bringing Canadians together who may or may not have known a ton about basketball, but it is so unifying and it is so positive and it's so uplifting. Um, and that energy is felt like people just feel happy. Um, and it's nice to be around that. It's nice to feel that energy in the city. Although I will say I'm not participating um, by being in Jurassic Park because uh, I actually don't do well in crowds of a kajillion. And, uh, it's, it's like the, the energy in when we have won games has been like overwhelming, um, in the downtown space. Um, so I'm enjoying it like everybody else on the news, on Instagram, on Twitter, <laughs> and from a That's great. That's yeah. great. Thanks for that. Just before we get into it and I, and, and I, I move, move more into the main body of the podcast though. For our listeners that may or may not be super familiar with it, what is what do you mean by Jurassic Park? This whole Jurassic Park thing is, if, you, if you're following it, you get it. But if you're not, what what does that mean? That's awesome. Uh, thank you. So uh, where the NBA games are played in Toronto, there's actually an outdoor space that gets blocked off um, in the downtown core, and it's called Jurassic Park. And they put up a large screen televisions. Uh, and the game's actually played outside so that fans who maybe couldn't afford uh, seat tickets have the ability to be together, enjoy the game together, go on the lives and, uh, highs and the lows, um, but to be together as a community. And what's really incredible is there's actually now over a 100 of these replica or mini Jurassic Parks in communities right across the country. So in Mississauga, they have one that brings together 25,000 people for every game. Um, in downtown Toronto, I think we're about a little over 100,000 people are in the one core downtown one. And then there's ones again at Young and Dundas Square and in other parts of the city. So it, it's a space to be together with community, taking in the game and celebrating the highs and the lows of great sport. That's fantastic. And of course, Jurassic Park, because they're called the Raptors, right? So I think it's so cool. Thanks, Tanya. And go Raps. Thank you all again for joining us on this, our 29th podcast. Today's topic, sacred cows. What do we take for granted in fundraising and should we? Let's begin with a quick definition from Miriam Webster. A sacred cow is someone or something that has been accepted or respected for a long time and that people are afraid or unwilling to criticize or question. From what I can see and from what our guests regularly talk and write about, our sector has its fair share of sacred cows, from gift charts to donor pyramids to gala fundraisers to year-end fundraising appeals to in-person fundraising, and the list goes on. The problem with ideas that are considered to be sacred is that people are, as the definition says, often unwilling to challenge these ideas, and these ideas are, just as often, outdated, inappropriate, or just plain wrong. With all due respect to the word sacred and to the word cows, Today, we're going to talk about, and likely debunk, a few of these ideas. Andrea, can we start with you? What are some sure. of the sacred cows you've seen, and how are they hurting us? Oh, um, well, I, I'm going to start with the uh, donor pyramid. Um, and I don't know that it needs to be, you know, when we talk about, when we talk about sacred cows, we talk about tipping the sacred cows. But... I don't know that the donor period needs to be tipped right out, but I think if we're stuck at looking at it, if we're stuck looking at it in the way that we traditionally have, um, we're not looking at uh, what is really happening in our fundraising programs and what's really happening with donors. Um, so I'm interested to have a conversation around the donor pyramid. I, th I think it theoretically it still applies, but in in Applicability and practicality. Um, how do we need to alter the way we look at it and talk about it and use it? In you know, it's a pretty fundamental underpinning of fundraising theory. Mm -hmm. So, it, if I had to push you to, to just quickly describe the standard, the, 
uh, donor pyramid as it stands in the in the fundraising canon? How would you describe it? Not 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 where it should be, what but what what we tell people it is. Well, it's you know broader base, your your um, lower value uh, gifts, uh, more donors at the base. People move through the donor pyramid into you know making bigger gifts, uh, and, and at the very top of the pyramid is is our legacy gifts and uh, right and high you know large lifetime value donors up there. Uh, right. And so our theory, I think, is our, our fundraising canon is based on moving people through the pyramid. I'm not sure I've ever really seen anybody move through the pyramid in right. years of fundraising. I probably have and just haven't recognized it. But, you know, how can we... So, what does that mean for us today? Right. Not just today, but more importantly, what does it mean for us tomorrow? Perfect. Okay, so I put a pin in donor pyramid. Uh, Bernard or, or Tanya, do you want to weigh in with uh, a sacred cow or two? Oh, I have so many. Where to begin? <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to actually, I'm going to pick one just to start, because uh, I actually sure. get built on the, the notional idea of the donor pyramid. And that is this idea of major gifts. Because the mm. term for me, major gifts, when we talk about major gift donors, what does that mean every other donor is? Does that mean well, every other donor yeah, that they're, they're minor, minor or they're, inco- <laughs> they're inconsequential. They're not as important or not as valued. Um, and I, I take great issue with that, and I've had some very juicy and heated debates uh, with lots of other fundraisers on this topic because we, we, we can't say all philanthropy is critical, and we can't talk about um, the base of the pyramid being the biggest pyramid and the one that's about engaging the most people and and in, and bringing them towards cause and purpose and building a relationship and then say, oh, but you're inconsequential. Because mm-hmm. really all we care about is if you can become a major donor. I have a, I'm getting a T-shirt made that's going to say I'm an inconsequential donor. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. But, but I, hear, course, I hear what you're saying. But- yeah. But so for me, this is one of them. I have more, but I want to share the love. Bernard, what's on your brain? <laughs> uh, okay, I, I, I slightly stole a little, little bit of your thunder earlier by saying about maybe we need to redefine. I hate some of the words we currently use. We need a new language. I hate the word charity. I hate the I loathe the phrase not for profit. I mean, how can you define so word? The thing I want to have a go at, actually, those conferences. I think there should be an end to all fundraising conferences. They are a way of spreading bad ideas, anecdotes dressed up as science, and um, what's called best practice, which usually means what used to work. So... um, Okay, so a, 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 a little a little bomb has been dropped into the mix. <laughs> I I love this little bomb uh, about conferences. So um, <laughs> I heard some fundraising conferences in particular. Right, fundraising. Should, what should what should we replace them with? Uh, maybe not anything, but uh, I I think the structure. I mean. One of the interesting things that I think we all share, uh, you know, between us is we all go to lots of conferences and it's quite fun and uh, the great social occasions to meet friends, colleagues, partners. I, I, I kind of worry that, um, I mean, for example, that's how I think ideas like the donor pyramid get promulgated, you know, because someone puts a slide up and the slide gets copied and the slide gets... Uh, my big worry is that I think conferences have become, uh, I don't want to dominate this bit of it, um, I, I just increasingly hear anecdote replacing data in lots of presentations. That, you know, people will take one anecdote. And I kind of want to say that a collection of anecdotes is not, a collection of anecdotes is not the same as a data set. And so I hear people repeating crazy things about, um, the scale of online giving, about the importance of um, uh, major gifts, or whatever. and those things are spread very often by anecdote uh, at conferences, when in fact we know as professionals that we kind of say, that's not really strictly true, it just sounded good in a conference session that somebody ran. I'm definitely, so as I speak, I'm 
definitely nailing my colours to the banal conferences. All right. I think we, 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 we can come back to that. Now, do we want to go down the path of more conversations about the language, or do we want to dig into one of these? I'm game for either, but I'm looking for the will of the crowd here. Okay, but are we, are, is that the, are those the only sacred cows we're going to talk about? No, not at all. That's <laughs> what I'm asking. So, so, she, okay, because I, I, put some, put some I have two, I have two more that I want to add to the mix. So one is that uh, the term sales and fundraising are not synonymous and that it's bad to use the term sales. Ah, so okay. that one is juicy and meaty, and um, but I want to talk about it, uh, especially as we ha- see a continuous influx of people from the corporate sector that are being brought in because of their understanding of the sales process. Okay. Yeah. So there's one. And then the second one that I think is really worth talking about is this um, perpetual pressure by um, boards to raise more, uh, to get more money, to we need to be bigger. And just the notional idea that bigger is not always better and that at the end of the day, just because you're bigger doesn't mean you're solving the problem that you actually started out to solve. All bigger means is that you're bigger. And I'd, I'd be very curious and interested that if we want to actually get impact focused and actually talk about what are we doing to substantively impact the causes that we set out to work to, why aren't we measuring ourselves against the impact to create that change? And, and I think our donors are pushing us to, but I think our boards are struggling with what they are, they know because they come in many cases from the corporate sector and how they define success is bigger and more, not and reduce, um, solve. Okay. So a couple more light topics. <laughs> That's a joke. Yeah, just a um, light one. Yeah, a okay. little bit, a little bit, little light, light idea. Uh, throw conferences to the curb, uh, tip over the donor pyramid, uh, 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 get rid of all these salespeople, and gosh, why don't we talk about impact? Who wants to start? Mm-hmm. I want to make Andrea. I want to make a, a comment because um, on uh, Tanya's initial one about major gifts is uh, um, I've been on a bit of a rant about this for years about the language that we use and how we overly frequently use our internal voices externally. And I couldn't agree more um, about you know, and even our t- even job titles, director of major gifts. I mean, if you give your card to somebody and it says director of major gifts, and you know, well, how how are we making our donors feel? Like I I just I think that we need to turn our language on its head. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I I'm imagining more the card. I mean, I, I'm still imagining the card that says I'm the director of minor gifts. How are you? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and, and fundraisers, fundraisers need to watch their language because, um, you know, we need to model instead of saying we need to, um, when we hear, particularly with board members and we hear people as Tanya, as you just mentioned, we need to get more money. It's not about getting more money. I mean, it's just, it, it's, um, you know, so we need to model that that better language. So I, I, I agree with that one 100%. Mm-hmm. Right. Language. Bernard? And I'm still, I'm still trying to decide yeah. what I feel about the conferences. <laughs> yeah. Well, while, okay. while you're thinking about that, we're going to give Bernard a chance to come in and, and throw another right-hand turn into this. What do you want to, want to, you want to tag uh, into one of these, Bernard? Yeah, no, I'm apt to pick I think those touch and so, so, they're kind of associated. Uh, there's a whole herd of sacred cows all hanging out together there. Um, I guess one is the business about um, uh, income. So, so a phenomenon we know in UK, uh, from my recent experience in Holland, from my recent experience in France, from my recent experience in uh, Switzerland. Uh, I understand from some data I'm seeing from the states, and I think. Vincent or Tanya, you could confirm to me in Canada. Um, what's happening is that lots of charities are holding their income up, but numbers of donors are falling. So by that simple metric of income, many of us are succeeding. And I'm hugely troubled that for me, 
that means the amount of philanthropy in the world, and by philanthropy I mean the broad process of engaging people in giving, we are failing in that fundamental mission. In a way, I'm much more interested in increasing the total amount of philanthropy, in which case income will follow up, whereas, you know, you can drive your income up. The demographics of bequests, the demographics of major gifts, means that you can drive your income up by simply focusing on your core streams. You're producing a result, but... I, I suppose I want to say I don't think I don't think I am fundamentally in the fundraising business. I think I'm in the philanthropy business. And if we're not increasing the total number of people who are giving, whether that's money or time as volunteers or whatever, I kind of almost want to say we are failing. I kind of almost want to say that because it can't just be about the money. We we can't raise enough money through our philanthropic endeavours to solve the world's problems without getting the great majority of people involved in a philanthropic mission. Does that make sense? So if I'm hearing you, and yes, those trends in North America are the same, Bernard, uh, in that the uh, dollars are are increasing, but the number of donors is decreasing. Are you saying that um, we we should be thinking about the fact that our business is really about growing philanthropy, and that means increasing the number of philanthropists. Yes, it must be part of that. It must be part. And, and again, relating to the high net worth space, I mean, we know, uh, we don't know, it's a, it's, a, it's a rough calculation. The total value of all high net worth and ultra high net worth giving in the world is a very hard sum to do. But it's been calculated at about $495 billion. That's a lot of money. One half of that money, one half of that money doesn't go towards poverty or feeding hungry people or making sure that women are safe who are victims of sexual violence or making sure that young women have actual access to sexual, you know, um, sanitary protection or whatever. One half of that money goes towards higher education. And of that, a further half goes towards the ultra-rich organizations, so Harvard, Oxford University. I'm really sorry, Harvard does not need any more money. Harvard could pay from its endowment for every young person in America to go to college for free. I, I feel so embarrassed to find my name as a fundraiser alongside, I don't mean to disrespect Harvard, sorry, if you're feeling disrespected, you probably don't care. I, you know, that's an organization that seems to be raising money. To, I'm not clear to what purpose, you know. Uh, and and I kind of want to say that's one of the problems with high net worth giving. It's, it's not based on any sense of social justice or probity. It, you know, it's about most of that high net worth money is going towards causes that, I'm going to say it, don't deserve the money. Don't need the money. Don't, damn it. It's not whether they do deserve it or not, they don't need the money. An organization that desperately need the money in healthcare mm. and stuff like that can't get it. We we live in a very unfair for a business that's meant to be about equality, we reward inequality in terms of who succeeds in fundraising. Over to you guys. All right. Okay. Some more light topics. Yeah. <laughs> Bernard, um there are many reasons why I love you and I'm uh, a member of the Bernard Ross fan club. But I would put this at the top of the list. This is my favorite topic to talk about. It's the difference between fundraising and philanthropy. And I think I've made it my career mission to challenge fundraisers to talk about what we do. Um, that we need to talk about the outcomes of what we do, which is to mm. engage philanthropy, grow philanthropy. Not about fundraising and raising money, but they're, and they're not the same thing. And many people will, will actually think that fundraising and philanthropy are the same thing. They're not. Fundraising is enabler. Philanthropy is the outcome. Philanthropy is what we're doing. I couldn't agree more. Growing philanthropy. Thanks, Andrea. I, um, I'm a big fan of that concept as well. So I'm glad that you reiterate that. Uh, Bernard, I just, I, I was just looking at, I, did you mean 495 trillion? I think that's what you meant, not billion. Um, oh, I think we're dealing with the difference between American and British billions and trillions. We we calculate <laughs> them in a different way. Oh, good, good. Well, that's a whole sidetrack that we're not going to take on the podcast. 
um, currency conversion between the old world and the new. Um, uh, but w- w- leave that aside. Uh, uh, it's a big number, um, and mm. uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you talked about it and and uh, and how how a lot of that is going to. Uh, I've noticed that too to higher education, uh, and then you said half of that again is going to these ultra elite institutions. So um, with that comment, of course, we lost all of our Ivy League subscribers. Oh wait, we don't have any. Um, so let's carry on. So I want to come in. I want to come in on that topic because um, I love that we've talked about bigger is not always better, and we've talked about philanthropy versus fundraising. And I think the idea that I brought up that the topic of sales is bad. One of the things that I've been um, just seeing a, a giant movement in proliferation to over the last decade, especially, is um, the hiring of traditional salespeople into roles related to fundraising and or philanthropy. And I will say, I think a large reason that that's happening is, and again, Bernard, like you, I, I may lose a lot of friends by saying this, but there's a lot of fundraisers that prefer to be behind their desk versus sitting with donors. Mm. And I think to actually build true philanthropy, you also need to have processes and rigor in place that mean you are getting out from behind your desk and you are having deep and meaningful conversations around the impacts that people want to have in the world. And so why I think we're seeing this proliferation of salespeople transition into these roles is because they have already been trained on the process of getting out, making connections, um, managing a prospect pool or a, a group of donors that they need to deepen relationships with, and they are applying a specific kind of rigor to do that work. Um, uh, there seems to be, you know, deep talent pressures on our sector um, as, in as much as finding really good, qualified people who have some substance and duration at their workplaces and, and can genuinely show building sustained long-term relationships with partners that are focused on outcomes. And so I I see this issue. So I've, I've kind of moved away because I was a bit of one of the, like, anti-sales people into the sector. And now I, I'm batting on the other side because I'm I'm probably one of many people that is sick of seeing groups of fundraisers who stay behind their desk but that don't actually get out and go and meet with their donors as much as they possibly can. I don't think you can build philanthropy if you're behind your desk. Right. So there's some good habits in sales, but where it isn't sales. Well, no, for sure it's not sales, but I think but they, but there but is some good a habits. good base. There are good behaviors and bases. The question is, can you translate those skill sets and build deep knowledge and understanding of what philanthropy means and what those, how those conversations are in fact different that ensure that it's not just about fundraising and about closing, closing the sale because it isn't mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Well, just I, to build um, on that. So, sorry. Go ahead, Bernard. Please do. So just to build on that, I think the um, one of the things I, I hate about fundraisers, I love them in bits, but uh, is you know it's not a cheerful it's not a cheerful profession, is it? About you know, sort of it's a tough market, and you're kind of going, come on, guys, it's a, it's a tough. Try selling photocopiers. You know that's a, that's a hard job. That's a hard job. You know. Um, or, I don't know, sanitary wear. I don't know, you know, uh, fundraising should be a joyful profession, and we're not a joyful profession in general. People want to complain about hard. I So, picking up a tiny spot about the salespeople, you know, at least salespeople get the the essential discipline of being out there and not being shy, being nervous, staying behind your desk, complaining you don't have, you know, GDPR means I don't, I can't collect enough information about the donor, so how can I possibly approach them? Uh, you wonder how fundraisers ever manage to have a relationship when they never have enough information about another human being to date them, you know? Okay, so you you are off a lot of Christmas card lists, Bernard, but I know you don't care um, with that comment. That's a fantastic fantastic comment. I am um, I'd be happy to follow this thread down. I want to just remind ourselves that we had. 
Um, a comment made earlier that I, I kind of wrote a comment about the, this idea about what the board expectations or motivations are and what the donor expectations and motivations are, and are they are they the same? And it, my sense is that they're not. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's worth talking about or parking for a different episode. It's totally worth talking about, but I think there's a different issue, which is a whole other podcast, which is actually around governance. Yes. Giant gaps in governance. Uh, but that, but I do think that is a secondary conversation. Um, but I will say, I mean, the trends that I'm seeing with the donors that I work with, and I will just preface that by saying it is primarily corporate and corporate foundations, but that the level of sophistication that I'm seeing from the donors and how hard they're pushing our organization um, around theory of change, around true impact measures, not outputs, not outcomes, but true impact, and the complexity of being able to do that when you're dealing with a wicked problem that is intersected by many, many organizations, um, trying to find and slice that piece out that's true and authentic um, is challenging, um, I think, when you work on very complex issues. Uh, and I would say, so in some ways, our donors are light years ahead of where many of our board members are in understanding that complexity um, and understanding how to be able to meet donors where they are, and also understanding the investments that need to be made inside of organizations to enable them to be successful at growing, whether it's more philanthropy or or deeper partnerships. Um, and, and it is investments. Uh, those are investments of the charity that has become an expectation of partners, um, mm. even if even if not every. Um, um, every line of business in the organization sees the value in it because it doesn't feel as close to mission. Um, it feels like a, an administration thread, but in actuality, it's about measuring our capability to successfully achieve our mission, which is very valuable. Thank you. And I, I made a note that we should um, we should consider an entirely uh, separate podcast because uh, it's such a big topic. So, Andrea, we haven't heard from you in a few minutes. Did you did you need room to to weigh in, or are you are you just happy listening? Um, I, I want to play a bit of a bit of the uh, devil's advocate on the on the question around you know we're not sales, um, and I like you, Tanya. I find that um, my thinking about this has has changed, and one of the things I like to do. Um, if, if it's appropriate, um, with our clients is I have a, a a little sign that I print off on my computer and I will stick it on the inside of someone's office door and it says there isn't any money in this office. Getting people out of their office, I, I totally agree with you. Um, however, um, I think there's an element of uh, moral and I'm doing this to push buttons, really. But I think there's a, an element of moral superior, superiority in the fundraising profession by saying that we're not sales. Um, you know, whether you're selling, as Bernard said, whether you're selling photocopiers or selling widgets, you're still selling something. And, you know, the, the, and, and we're selling experiences and we're selling impact. So, uh, uh, and we want our donors to come back. But if I'm selling you a photocopier, I want you to buy your next photocopier from me as well. Um, personally, I'd much rather sell impact and, and, you know, meaningful moments. But I'm not really sure that we're not about sales. It's just it's just a matter of what we're selling. Okay. But I will say, do you not find it shocking how many fundraisers, like, are aghast? to hear language like that. Like, I remember in one of my first interviews when I was a baby fundraiser talking about some of the transferable skills I had from, the like, working in sales. And they were basically like, don't ever say that again. That's not what we do. That degrades what we do. Right. Yeah. They're they're right? donors, like, not customers. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, okay. So I, like, bottled that up. And then, you know, obviously I grew out of my baby phase into my rebellious teenage phase, and then I challenged that a lot. Yeah. And I'm, I'm clearly still in my teenage phase. <laughs> I, um, Tanya, you threw uh, – we don't have to go down this thread, but I, I, I just uh, – I found this – language so interesting as a differentiator between how an organization thinks 
uh, and whether I feel like they're more on the fundraising track or the philanthropy track. When I hear someone at an organization in leadership or on the board use language like, this is our theory of change, that tells me that they're probably more on the we think about philanthropy than they are on the we think about fundraising. That's been my experience, because I, and I don't hear it enough. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that, that that language is super interesting to me when I'm meeting with people. Yes, Any, but uh, I would, yeah, I mean, I would just, I would just say that, um, <laughs> excuse me, it's hard. I mean, I, I think about the varieties of organizations that I've worked at over my career and where they were in their maturity and evolution. And I will say, you know, as a sector, um, there's not enough depth and time and energy being spent on actually how we move the needle in a very deep way towards achieving our causes. Mm-hmm. Um, we are proliferating, you know, businesses, um, mm-hmm. right? And I, I just think, and it's and it's really hard work. Uh, and I will say, it often puts us in very uncomfortable places to have those conversations. And I would, I, I will also say that um, as fundraisers, we are not necessarily the experts or the owners of this work. It requires us working very deeply and very cross-functionally um, in our organizations, and it often requires us bringing in people to help us really understand, like the theoretical components as well as how do you put it into practice, how does it shift behavior. Um, et cetera, and, and also educating our boards and our committees, et cetera. So it's a hard process, and I think it, it's a hard process for organizations to go through, and I think that's why we don't see every organization in this space doing it. Absolutely. We, um, thanks, Tanya. We, we, uh, we went from uh, a kickoff conversation or a, a Putting a pin in, the, in, 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 in one of the, the sacred cows of the donor pyramid to talking about language, to talking about uh, uh, the ideas uh, behind sales and a whole bunch of things. Do we need to talk about some of the things, come back to, I mean, what does tipping over the donor pyramid or tipping over some of these other things mean? Um, do we want to talk about that for the, the, the next uh, uh, four or five minutes? Or throw something else out. And Andrea, do you figure out how you feel about conference? Go ahead, Bernard. No, no, hear, hear from Andrea. Let's hear from Andrea. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you might not have been ready. Well, I, no, I, I'm, I'm still thinking about your comment about about conferences, um, Bernard. And um, you know, I think in our drive to uh, plan for and adopt best practices in in fundraising. Um, have we, is what we're missing is that donors don't necessarily fit into the, into our best practice processes all that neatly. Maybe they never did, but certainly, um, I don't think they do now. Um, and so are our best practices and the systems that we set up, are they actually capturing how a donor thinks about Making a philanthropic gift. Yeah, um, I, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say. I mean, for me, the phrase is the map is not the territory. So for me, the issue is that people look at donor pyramids and they don't. A donor pyramid is a way of creating a map uh, of the donor landscape. In the same way, as a donor journey is a slightly more sophisticated version. These are tools and frameworks which help us make sense of what otherwise would just be a whole lot of messy stuff. But they're not true in the way, you know, a map of London, the, the London Underground, is not a genuine reflection of how London's organised. It's just a way of helping you get around London. I think the Donor Pyramid or a Donor Journey or any of those tools are like London Underground maps, but that's not the way people see them. You know, people sometimes take that way and say, well, that's Donor Pyramid is the way things are. And once you know, it's more complicated than that. It's more nuanced than that. Or... It's evolving, and, and my worry is that sometimes people take some of the. That's my real complaint about uh, conferences: is that people present or take these tools and apply them too literally, as though they were the territory, when in fact they are just the map. If that slightly bizarre metaphor makes sense. Yeah, 
No, that metaphor is, is a well-used one. I'm glad you used it. Um, Andrea, I, I don't want to step on your response to, uh, to, uh, to Bernard, so I'll just I'll step back for a second. Oh, Do you have anything um, to say? Yeah, go, ahead, go ahead. Well, no, I, I, I agree with, with, with that. Um, I think we, we set up, you know, things like stewardship programs and um, pipelines and all of those tools and systems that we use. Uh, and I, I don't think, yeah, I, I just not, I, are we really listening to our donors? Um, and how do we do that? Uh, how do we do that better? And how do we do that in today's world when, when there's so many communication channels? Um, I think it's very challenging. The, um, the, the comment about the map is not the territory, as I mentioned, is not a new uh, comment, but it is an interesting concept, Bernard, in that maybe it's, it holds a clue to what Andrea just asked, um, in that uh, we, at conferences, we, we, we do off the top with the map, and we, we pretend that the territory is the same, um, and, we don't, and so maybe more emphasis on, 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 on giving uh, some more credence to, well, how do you actually wander the territory as well? Um, uh, or how important is that? Because, you know, you, you do understand London a lot better when you take the tube as opposed to looking at the map. Uh, but you need both. Well, my point, without getting carried with the metaphor, my point is that you can get around London more easily. Right. You're using it. Yeah. Um, and I, but then that doesn't mean that you understand how London works or what no. Londoners are like. And I agree with Andrea, absolutely. We need to... You know, I mean, it goes back to that question about philanthropy. What is happening if, if, if it is our job to be involved in philanthropy, if it is our job to create, to increase the total amount of philanthropy, the total amount of love of humanity that we are creating, and we are only using one metric, which is the amount of money we're getting to do that, I kind of want to say we are failing in our job. Um, you know, we need some, we need some other metrics for boards, for ourselves, whatever. To, to talk about that, you know, because that 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 involves us, as, as Andrea just said, it involves us understanding what what are we doing, what what is changing the world that's making fewer people give, and what are we doing that's not encouraging more people to give when we think we're so clever at this job? What do we need to do differently? Could we take a moment just to talk about? I I actually loved Bernard. I loved the you know, chuck the fundraising conference out concept, although I gasped when you said it. Um, <laughs> I, I literally gasped. Um, I heard you. I heard I, you. Yeah, but but part of me loved that. And and I will say, like, I I can't remember the last fun, traditional fundraising conference I attended. Actually, I can. It was 2010. So just think, that's nine years later, uh, that I attended from front to back. And a lot of that has to do with that I think there are, that the change and the disruption that's happening in the marketing space um, uh, and in the digital space um, and in the generational spaces are not being talked about, explored, researched, understood in a deep enough way to shift our practice and behavior. And we're not having enough conversation around data and I, I mean, I just think like there's there's real gaps, and it's like I I think the importance of understanding the theory of good fundraising practice is critical, but I think that that elevated conversation and shifts in perspectives and challenge to broaden our skills. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm more than a fundraiser. I'm a fundraiser. I'm a marketer. I'm a data analytics expert. I you know, I, I, you have to build a very broad toolkit to be an effective fundraiser. And, and I find so many of the fundraising conferences are just too shallow. So I, you know, I loved that you went there. <clears throat> yeah. And, and Bernard, I was interested, you, you said earlier that, you know, anecdotal, um, collection of anecdotes is replacing, um, data. 
So, and I know you do a lot of work in change management and, and, you know, it, it can be tough to change and it takes really strong leadership to change. And when we're talking about, you know, uh, tipping our sacred, sacred, sacred cows, it's, you know, people will gasp because it's like killing off your darlings, you know. So, um, but sometimes, and I think even more so now, is that we need to develop strategy that's backed by research analysis evidence-based strategy. And I don't think that we've done a very good job in our profession of, of uh, including and infusing everything from the work that we do to how we strategize, how we plan for it, to how we talk about it with evidence. We, mm. I agree with you. We lean on anecdotes. And there is a lot of evidence and, and, and market research that's it's not may not be specific to fundraising, but it certainly is specific to marketing and to uh, sales. And we we should we need to be using more of that. I so agree with it, Bo, Bo, Tanya and, and Andrea. I so agree with what you just said. I, I mean, to build on that, we did a couple of things. One is the um, I'm really troubled that I I mean I main reason I go to conferences now is partly if it's a nice country and and I get to meet old friends or not so old friends and talk to them but I see fewer senior fundraisers exactly what you said Tanya I see fewer senior fundraisers going to conferences or they go and give a presentation and then they go off and and I'm worried that conferences many conferences have become places where neophytes learn the business that's not a bad thing you know we all had to learn a business somewhere but, you know, is there a group of senior fundraisers? And I'd love to think that, you know, the four of us are maybe part of that group. Well, we're not getting together to talk about big stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's in a bar or over a meal or at a conference, to talk about or the podcast stuff. Or to part, and maybe we're doing it as a, you know, a podcast, but I kind of, you know, I'd love to have a room with a hundred really serious senior fundraisers just having a kind of conversation about what have we made and what, what do we want to make rather yeah. than focusing on can I teach, can I learn the next new thing? So that's one thing. The second thing is to say that and it's interesting to me when I go to commercial conferences. So uh, I didn't go myself, but a colleague was at a conference recently where um, about behavioral economics, which I think you guys know I'm really interested in. Mm-hmm. And at the conference, there was a person there from Uber and a person there from um, Airbnb. Now you might think Uber... Right. It's like selling photocopiers, you know, uh, you yep. order a cab, a cab, it's a nice, it's a nice little app, but that's all it is. It's just an app. You hire a cab, the cab drops you off, blah, blah, blah. Airbnb, you hire an apartment or you rent an apartment. But the, the people from Airbnb and Uber who are presenting said, like, listen up. Uber does 12,000 experiments a year on the app to discover how to drive business. I'm going to say that again. 12,000 variations, both for the cab drivers and for the customers. 12,000 tiny changes in the app. If you think about how simple the Uber app is hmm. to encourage more custom. Airbnb does 5,000. So going back to our point about, can you imagine going to your board and saying, hello, I'd like to make one tiny change to our website, please. And the average board saying, goodness, well, that'll have to go through... Mm, that will have to go through 17 stages of approval. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> wow, 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 only yeah. 17. I mean, yeah, well, whatever, do you mean know, only 17? No, 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 that was a joke. so far behind in, 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 yeah. no, no, but in experimentation, you know, that, that's part of the reason why these organizations are succeeding is because they are, they're changing. They're not getting it right. They're just changing lots of stuff okay. to see what what. And that's part of Andrea's point, Tanya's point about, you know, in order to understand, we can't understand what's happening in society. We have to kind of, in some academic way, we have to be in it. We have to be out from behind our desks in order to find out what's happening because kind of nobody knows. I don't think anybody knows. Uber doesn't know. Airbnb doesn't know. That's why they do 12,000 and 5,000 experiments, to find out. Bernard, that's an excellent uh, observation, uh, and we need to do a whole podcast on change and evidence. Oh, I'm in. That's, fan- uh, that's a fantastic uh, way to sort of wrap this up. We, 
I, I wish we could talk for a couple hours. Uh, uh, I actually have the time, but our audience uh, likes the kind of hour-long format, and I'm respectful <laughs> of your time. Um, so we'll 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 do this as part three through seventy-five um, in another <laughs> session. Um, but I, I, you know, I want to thank all of you for for taking time. But but before we go. I want each of you to have a chance to tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you're working on or where people can reach you or, 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 or just something that you want people to hear. And remember, this is coming out in August, although I will pull a snippet off for the wraps tonight. We're going to start with you, Tanya. What do you want to leave the audience with today? Uh, um, push yourselves beyond fundraising. Um, get out there and... Um, Push yourself to learn, whether it's about leadership or my favorite new topic that's stretching my brain right now is MarTech stacking. So push yourself. Is what? Is what? It's called MarTech stacking, marketing technology stacking. And it is phenomenal to look at from an acquisition and retention lens. And so just pushing ourselves into spaces that are unknown to allow our brains to expand um, and just, like, connect with new people that spark new things, new ideas, um, that you can see your world very differently. That's my my one thing. Go away and, and push yourself to do something really uncomfortable, really new, and jump in with both feet. Thank you, Tanya. And I learned a new term, MarTech stacking. That's awesome. All right, Andrea, mm. you're up. What do you want our audience to know? Here. Think about it. Uh, Okay, so so this uh, this conversation has been uh, about dropping bombs. So I'm going to end with dropping another bomb. Um, I was at the um, AHP conference in Toronto in May, and Ted Gerard, who's the CEO of SickKids uh, Hospital Foundation, um, was one of the plenary speakers. And you know, SickKids is uh, just a fundraising behemoth. They uh, they do amazing work. Um, but he, he said, and there was a collective gasp in the room, and he repeated it several times, that in five years he thinks Sick Kids is going to be a technology organization. Now, how's that for a sacred cow? Wow. Just think, mm. so, just think about that. Yeah, so, so its primary uh, uh, day-to-day work would be focused around tech? Technology, yeah. Yep. That, uh, wow. Wow. A, grow, a strongly growing majority of people are making gifts online through to sick kids and are mm-hmm. actually connecting mm-hmm. with sick kids um, through digital the initial yeah. time. Well, that's great. So five years is primarily be thought of as a technology company. That is something to pin all of us to the wall. Nice bomb. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> Bernard, we're going to give you – go ahead. Sorry, Andrew, I didn't want to cut you off. What did you no, make? no, no. That's I'm fine. That's good. Okay, so Bernard, we're going to give you the last word today. Um, you have been a little, uh, a little, a little bit of a wallflower in this whole thing. Uh, you haven't really been thoughtful, and I'm giving you an opportunity now <laughs> to uh, to step up your game and close this out with something okay. really, really uh, uh, deep and meaningful. Go. Okay. Good. Good. Well, I hope you got some other clients for your. Um Esteem coaching service, Linton, because you just lost me. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know so I'm am... Keep going. I don't know. It's completely fine. It's completely fine. If, if I was sensitive, it would be, it would be patient. Thankfully, I'm not. Um, so I'm putting a show on at the Edinburgh Festival. I'm here in Edinburgh, not doing that. But I'm, between the 2nd and the 17th of August, I'm putting a show on about behavioral economics at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, combining some of the stuff I talk about, about behavioral economics and stand-up comedy in order to raise money. F- well, the purpose is partly to raise money for Médecins Sans Frontiers, but also to try and reconnect with the audience. I'm trying to find a new way to engage with donors, uh, and I'm trying to see if I can do it through stand-up comedy and performance. So if anyone wants to come and visit me uh, at the Edinburgh Festival, they can do that. And I'm also available for... Um, Conference presentations in attractive cities, <laughs> <laughs> including, well, well, including that, Toronto that, in November. <laughs> with that, with, with that, Bernard. Not subtle at all. That was awesome. No, no, and, and also I have to laugh. This, 
Bernard earlier in the podcast said we, you know, we got to get rid of conferences. So yeah, I think the com- the thing that went through my mind as we were going through this is um, uh, the conference is dead. The conference is dead. Long live the conference. So with that, thank you all. With that, our gift of another brain trust philanthropy powered by Betrayo has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you will join us next month when we will be visiting with Kathy Mann. Sharon Avery, Cheryl Barlidge, Andrew McManus, and Doug Rankmore. Our topic, Come Together, Collaboration in the Nonprofit Sector, Why Coming Together Makes Sense and When It Doesn't. Until then, take care of yourselves, and we look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta, Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Braintrust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth.